All right, let's open in prayer. Dear Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for this time to gather together, to worship you, to fellowship together, to encourage one another, and to receive encouragement. Uh, we pray that you would just give us wisdom through the sermon, that you would uh, help us to be prepared for the successes and the failures that we're going to have in the future. Uh, we pray that you would bless us and you would equip us, and we thank you for your grace and amen. So today's sermon is titled, Responding to Your Sins and Failures. I wanted to teach on this because we all have sins and failures, and we're all going to have more sins and failures. They're coming for everyone. And we need to know how to respond to them. If you don't know how to respond to your sins and failures, sometimes um, a big failure that comes your way that you didn't expect can be really discouraging. It can be very difficult to handle. So we need to know how to respond to our sins and failures because they're going to happen. I'm mainly talking about sins in the sermon, but I'm not only talking about sins. All the principles that I'm going to mention apply to failures that aren't specifically do disobedience to God, such as when you accidentally make a big mistake on a project at work or something. But we should know, we need to know how to respond to our sins and failures. So I want to look at a few verses that kind of illustrate that we are, we are all going to have sins and failures. We're going to fail in multiple times and in, multi, and in various areas. Let's look at Ecclesiastes 7 verse 20. Surely there is not a righteous person on earth who always does good and never sins. Can I get an amen? Amen. Let's also look at Proverbs 24 verse 16. For the righteous falls seven times and rises again, but the wicked stumble in times of calamity. And again, I don't think Solomon was saying that righteous people fall literally seven times and then that's it. If you have an ape failure in your life, that's it for you. <laughs> this means the righteous fall a lot. Seven is the number of completion. The righteous fail completely might be one way to look at that. The righteous fail completely, yet get up again. So how, how should we respond to our sins and failures? There are five things that I think we should do, that'll, five principles that will help us to respond correctly to our sins and failures and hopefully make the most out of them. Because you can benefit from your failures. You can benefit from your mistakes. And that's something we should learn to do. But the first thing we need to do if we're going to respond correctly to our sins and failures is to learn to see them from the correct perspective. There's a, a few things we need to do if we're going to see them from the correct perspective. The first thing we need to do is to not see them as too big. So there's, there's two ways you can not see your sins correctly, or at least two. You can see them as too big and you can see them as too small. And there's a lot of struggle in the human life with both of these issues. But we're going to talk about seeing them as too big first, and then we'll talk about seeing them as too small. It's wrong for you to see your sin as bigger than God sees it. And that is something we can actually do. But I, I want to say again, it's wrong for you to see your sin as bigger than God sees it. You might get the idea that since you ought to love God as much as you possibly can, 
that therefore you ought to hate your sin as much as you possibly can. But you need to be careful with that train of thought because it kind of naturally leads to the idea that you should feel as bad as you can possibly feel about your sin. And that is not true. That is an unbiblical idea. You should hate your sin, but you shouldn't make your goal to hate it as much as you possibly can because goals like that tend to lead people away from God's grace. Instead, your goal should be to see your sin the way that God sees it. God doesn't see your sin as the end of the world. Neither should you. Sometimes we do get tempted to, you know, when we've failed again after struggling and struggling and struggling with the same sin, to feel like our sin is the end of the world. But God doesn't see it as the end of the world. Because God is the conqueror over sin and death. And if he doesn't see here sin as the end of the world, you shouldn't see it as the end of the world. God is very level-headed about your sin. He doesn't approve of it, but he isn't discouraged about it if you're a Christian. Well, he isn't discouraged either way. But he knows he's going to win. God is not discouraged about your sin. He doesn't approve it, but he's not discouraged about it. And even, even though sin is displeasing to God, if you're a child of God, then God has delight in you as a person, even though you still sin. Jeremiah doesn't always obey me, but I still, I don't just love him, I very much enjoy him. I am very happy that he is my son and that he lives in my home. Even when he bites me and punches me. I actually still have a bruise on my chest from the last time he bit me. (laughs) He hasn't done it since. (laughs) But I still delight in him a lot. I say that to say, I'm a sinful father, and I delight in my son a lot. And God is a perfect father. And if you are one of his children, if you're a Christian, then God delights in you in spite of the fact that you still sin. So, with this idea that we need to not see our sin as too big, what I'm really getting at is it's wrong for us to see our sin as bigger than God sees it. God doesn't see it as the end of the world, and neither should you. God also doesn't see your sin as a reason for him to love you any less. So you shouldn't see it as a reason for him to love you any less either. And if you do, then you see your sin as too big, because you see it as bigger than God. Maybe more specifically, you see God is too small, but at least relationally, you see here sin is too big. Let's look at Romans 8, 38, verse 39. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. I love to point out when reading this verse, you are part of all creation. That means you can't separate yourself from the love of God. That means nothing you can do, no matter how bad you mess up, can separate you from the love of God. 
else you'd be capable of separating you from the love of God. But you're part of all creation, and nothing in all creation can separate one of God's children from his love. So we need to not see our sin as too big. It's not the end of the world, and it's not a reason for God to love us any less. But we also need to not see our sin as too small. That is another thing that we get tempted with, or that we struggle with. Sin has to be taken seriously. Sin is a major issue. Any Christian who doesn't have any desire to conquer their sin should really seriously question whether or not they're even actually a Christian. The Bible says very clearly in uh, the epistles of John that those who have been born again will desire to conquer their sin. Sin has to be taken very seriously. We also need to avoid minimizing our sin. We often uh, minimize our sin by making excuses for it. We kind of try to get ourselves to see it as smaller by making excuses for it or saying, well, I couldn't have done any better or there was this reason or they deserved it. We need to avoid minimizing our sin. That's one of the most common ways that we see our sin is too small as we make excuses for it. So how can you tell if you're not seeing your sin correctly? How can you tell if you're seeing it as bigger than it is or as smaller than it is? There's just a few things I want to mention. You're seeing it as too big if you feel that it's the end of the world or if you feel like because you've sinned you're now worthless. Those are two ways that I would say you, you can tell that you see your sin as too big if you feel like it's the end of the world or if you feel like because you've sinned, you're now worthless. But there's also a few ways I would say you can, that kind of are a clue that you see your t- sin is too small. You see your t- sin is smaller than it really is if you don't feel that you need to avoid repeating it. If you don't feel that you should be doing things to avoid repeating it, then you see it as too small. You don't think of it as serious as it actually is if you're not trying to avoid repeating it. I would also say you see your sin not as seriously as you should if you don't wish that you hadn't done it. Repentance... In my mind, there's kind of two parts to repenting of something. One is choosing that I'm not going to do it again. That has to do with the future. But there's also kind of a repentance in your heart that has to do with the past. And that's choosing, I wish I hadn't done that. If you don't wish that you hadn't sinned, you don't think your sin's very serious. The last thing I would say that's an indicator that you don't know how serious your sin is, if you think you're a good person because of how you live, then you don't know how serious your sin is. For absolute certain. If you think that you're a good person because of the way you live your life and how you obey God, you don't know how bad your sin is. Jesus said no one is good except God. So that's the first thing we need to do if we want to respond correctly to our sins and failures. We need to learn to see them from the correct perspective. The second thing we need to do is we shouldn't let 
it affects our identity. We can't let our sins and our failures determine our identity. So there's, there's a few things I want to say about this idea of not letting our sin affect our identity. God doesn't want us to identify with our sin. Let's look at Romans chapter 6, verses 8 through 11. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin, once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. If you're a Christian, God doesn't want you to identify with your sin. He wants you to consider yourself. He's telling you how he wants you to think here. He wants you to consider yourself dead to sin. So Paul is not denying that Christians still struggle with sin. This is Romans chapter 6, and in the very next chapter, he's going to talk about how he struggles with sin. He's going to talk about the, how he does things he wish he wouldn't do, and the good he wants to do, he doesn't do. Paul still struggles with sin, but Paul refuses to identify himself by his sin. God wants us to identify with his work of redemption instead. Let's look at 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So God says very specifically, he doesn't want us to identify with our sin. If you are a Christian, if you have received Christ, if you trust in him as Savior and you're seeking to obey him in every area, then you shouldn't identify with your sin. You should identify as a new creation, as a child of God, as someone who's being redeemed and who's going to win sooner or later. By God's sovereign empowerment, you are going to win. The second thing I want to say about not letting sin affect your identity is that you, can't, you shouldn't let it affect your sense of worth. Oftentimes when we sin or fail, we get tempted to allow it to affect how we feel about our worth as a person. And I just want to say some things about that and, uh, and kind of give it an encouragement. And if ever you're struggling with this, hopefully you can think of this as a reminder. But you are God's masterpiece if you are a child of God, and he is still working on you. You are God's workmanship and special treasure. He is going to keep working on you, and he is going to perfect you. Let's look at Ephesians 2, verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God had prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So God says that we are his workmanship. But he also says that he's going to perfect us. Let's look at Romans 8, verses 29. For those whom God foreknew, he also predestined 
to become to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So God is going to keep working on us and eventually that will be perfected when either Christ comes back or when we die, but we will one day be perfectly like Christ in our character. But that that says a lot about your worth on a practical level. So personally, I think that feelings of worth really come down to whether or not a, a person feels likable and whether or not they feel useful. But Christ is the most likable being in existence, and he's also the most useful. Amen. And so since God is transforming you into his image and he's not going to give in or be defeated, you are going to become more and more likable and more and more useful. And you should remember that. You are God's workmanship, his masterpiece. And even though God's work is still in progress, by the time he is completely finished with you, you will be completely and highly desirable, and all your flaws and failures will not be enough to keep him from succeeding in that. So don't allow your sins or your failures to affect your sense of worth. Your worth comes from God and the fact that he made you his workmanship and that he's going to keep working on you and he's not going to get discouraged or give up. So I make computer programs for a living and if one doesn't do what I want it to, if one has a glitch, I don't throw it out and say, this is a worthless computer program. I just fix the glitch and I make good computer programs. God does the same, but much better. So we can't afford to let our sins and failures affect our identity. So what's the third thing we should do when responding to our sins and failures? Well, we should learn to make the most of them. But how do we make the most of our sins and failures? Well, I, I have four things that I think will help us to make the most of them, to benefit from them, to get something out of them. Because you can learn from your mistakes. You can benefit from them. Well, the first thing we should do, speaking of learning from it, is learn from it. There are at least two things you can learn from any fail here. Sometimes there's more, but... It depends on the failure, but there's at least two things you can learn from any failure. How to avoid it in the future and how to help others avoid it. So how do you get good at learning how to avoid mistakes in the future? I think it's really helpful to think about how it happened, how this failure happened, how this sin happened, and what could have prevented it from happening. I think it's a really good habit when you, um, when you sin in some area and you realize, oh, I really shouldn't have done that. I don't want to do that again. To take time, maybe with pen and paper or a, or a writing, a note-taking app or something, and think about, you know, why did this happen? Why did I choose this? Why did I do that in that situation? And what could I do? What could have been done to make it so I wouldn't have done that? And can I prevent it from happening again? What can I do to prepare myself to not repeat this? If you do this every time, especially if there's a certain sin you struggle with that you 
you know, fall for repeatedly. If you do this every time you fall in a certain area, the knowledge that you gain really starts to add up over time. It can really start to add up over time if you take the time to think about this every time you fail. So we can also learn how to help others uh, avoid making the same mistakes we made. But really, these two things are almost the same thing. But if, if you use that knowledge with people you might mentor or have influence with, then you'll get more out of your mistakes. But if you figured out how to avoid repeating it yourself, typically it's that same knowledge of how to help others avoid it. You can learn a lot from any sin or fail here, but it, it typically takes time to think about it. If you don't take the time to think about it, you, you almost certainly won't learn as much from it as you could have. So that's the first way we can benefit from our, our failures, is we can learn from them. But there's three other ways I think we can benefit from them. Let it help you see God as more gracious. So every time you sin, it's an opportunity to remind yourself how gracious God is to you and how merciful he is to you. Let's look at Psalm 9 verse 1. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. So David is talking about how he gives thanks to God and he remembers all the good things God has done towards him. Well, one of the good things God does for you is he forgives you Amen. a lot. He forgives all of us a lot. Every time you sin is an opportunity to reflect on God's grace and mercy and hopefully to see God as more gracious and more merciful. It's an opportunity for you to remember how much he loves you. One of the things that helped me uh, get to know God's love the deepest when I first kind of came to Christ or when I first surrendered to him is this realizing how much he forgave me and how determined he was to forgive me. Um, you know, knowing that I would grow up in a Christian home and kind of get to know him and still completely and utterly forsake him just to live selfishly for myself and um, and become addicted to pornography and just live for that is the number one thing I want to do and enjoy in life. And God knew I would do that. And knowing I would do that, he still chose to die for me anyways. And that's amazing. Your sin really is an opportunity to see God as more gracious if you're willing to reflect on it. And that's a great thing. Like that changed my life getting to know God's love deeper in that way. I wouldn't be the same person if that didn't happen. If I didn't think about that, how much God loves me. The third way we can benefit from our sins and failures. 
allow it to keep you humble. So thinking that God accepts us or blesses us because of our own righteousness is something we all get tempted to think. And every time we sin, it's an opportunity to remind ourselves that his acceptance and his blessing isn't because of us. It's because of him and his grace and his love. Let's look at Deuteronomy 9, verses 4 through 5. Do not say in your heart, after the, Lord has, after the Lord your God has thrust them out before you, it is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. Whereas it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you, not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going to possess their land, but because of the wickedness of these nations the Lord God is driving them out before you, that he may confirm the word of the Lord that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. So God is telling Israel before they go in to conquer the land of Canaan, don't think this is because you're good people. Don't think that. Don't get that in your head. That is not true. That's a dangerous thought that's going to lead you astray. Don't let yourself think that I'm blessing you because you're good people. He goes on even further in verses 6 and 7. Know therefore that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness, for you are a stubborn people. Remember and don't forget how you provoked the Lord your God to wrath in the wilderness from the day you came out of the land of Egypt until you came to this place. You have been rebellious against the Lord. So God isn't telling them to identify with their sin, but he is telling them to remember and not forget it because he doesn't want them to become prideful and to think that God is blessing them because they're good people. To me, it kind of just sticks out, remember and do not forget. God is telling them to not forget their sin because the memory of it is useful to them. It's useful for staying humble. And staying humble will get them more blessed. Not that they're earning blessing by being humble, but it kind of gives them more of a capacity to receive blessing without that blessing becoming bad for them. Humility increases your capacity to receive blessing without it being bad for you. God is telling them that the memory of their sin is beneficial to them if it keeps them humble. It's useful, so don't forget it, is what he's telling them. So that being said, every time we sin or fail, that's an opportunity for us to stay humble. That's an opportunity for us to remember, God does not accept me or bless me because I'm a good person. That's a load of nonsense, and that's unbiblical. God blesses you and accepts you because of his grace and his mercy and his love. You are not a good person. But again, when I say allow it to make you humble or to keep you humble, I'm not saying that you should allow it to make you feel like you have less worth because that's not actual humility. Let it remind you how much you need God's help and how dependent on his grace you are and how it's only because of him that you have any desire to live for him at all. 
which by the way, that shouldn't be upsetting to you. If you think about how dependent on God's grace you are and you feel upset about it, that means you have a bit of progress to make in humility. You want to get to the point where you can think about how dependent on God you are and just not feel upset about it and just be perfectly content with it. And that's why I've said before that emotional security and humility are somewhat related to each other. The last thing we can do to benefit from our sins and failures is to allow them to make you more gracious towards others. We are naturally more gracious to others when we see ourselves as just as sinful as they are. If you see yourself as just as sinful as other people, you'll naturally be more gracious to them. And you are, in your heart, at the core of it, just as sinful as they are, even if you've been sanctified more. You know, we, we were all born with a sin nature, and if we've overcome it, it's only because of God. The same sin nature that existed in Hitler exists in you. And if you've overcome it to any measure, it's by God's grace. It's from dependence on him. But knowing that allows us to be gracious towards others. Because if we start to think that we're better than others, then we're not going to be gracious towards others. All right, so learning to make the most of it. We should make the most of our sins and failures. We should seek to benefit from them. What's the fourth thing we can do um, in responding to our sins and failures? We should forgive ourselves. The fourth thing I would say you should do is you need to learn to forgive yourself. Forgiving yourself is super important, but sometimes we get tempted to not forgive ourselves. But that can be a real problem if you're unwilling to forgive yourself. There's a few reasons it's a real problem. Uh, For one thing, it has various emotional consequences. If if a person doesn't forgive themselves for something, if they have something they're holding against themselves in their heart and they're unwilling to forgive themselves, that is going to lead to emotional issues or, or, uh, or mental health issues. That is not going to just go without consequence. It typically leads to rejection or worth issues or anger issues or even demonic issues. There's been cases that I've known of of people who have developed demonic issues for uh, not forgiving themselves. But not forgiving yourself is, it's not only not good for your emotional health, but it's, it's outright unbiblical. Failure to forgive yourself is a failure to agree with God. If you're choosing to not forgive yourself because you think you shouldn't, just know that you're choosing to disagree with God. Because God says, I think so and so, I think Josiah should be forgiven. So if I hear God say, I think Josiah should be forgiven, and by his actions he says that because he forgives me, and I say to myself, I don't think I should be forgiven, I've just disagreed with God. That's very arrogant. If you don't forgive yourself, you're disagreeing, if you're disagreeing with God. You're saying God is wrong 
for forgiving you if you're unwilling to forgive yourself. And that's dangerous because it's very arrogant. But just like forgiving others is a choice, not a feeling, forgiving yourself is a choice, not a feeling. You need to choose to forgive yourself, just like you choose to forgive others. The fifth thing I would say about how we should respond to our sins and failures is that we need to take responsibility for it. So how do we take responsibility for it? Well, the first thing you need to do is admit what you did and be willing to accept fault for it. Let's look at Proverbs 28, verse 13. Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Denying that you failed or denying that you sinned to yourself is a form of concealing your transgressions. If you never admit your mistakes and admit that they're there, that they are your fault, you're never going to grow as a person, ever, until you start to be willing to admit your mistakes and accept blame and responsibility for them. You need to be willing to admit what you did, and you need to be willing to accept fault for it. The second way we take responsibility for it is to make restitution if restitution needs made. Now, that that depends on what the particular sin is or what the particular mistake or failure was, but sometimes restitution does need made, and restitution is a biblical principle. Let's look at Leviticus chapter 6, verses 1 through 5. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, If anyone sins and commits a breach of faith against the Lord by deceiving his neighbor in a matter of a deposit or security, or through robbery, or if he has oppressed his neighbor, or has found something lost and lied about it, swearing falsely, and any of all the things that people do and sin thereby, if he has sinned and realized his guilt and will restore what he took by robbery or what he got by oppression, or the deposit that was committed to him, or the lost thing that he found, or anything about which had sworn far falsely, he shall restore it in full and add a fifth to it, and give it to him uh, to whom it belongs on the day he realizes it, his guilt. So God is saying that... So I don't think this is talking about sins out of ignorance, by the way. It's hard to imagine people doing some of this stuff out of ignorance. Like you found something your neighbor lost, and he asks you about it, and you lie to him. No, I didn't find a $100 bill. What are you talking about? You didn't do that out of ignorance. You, you knew what you were doing. So when he says realizes his guilt, I don't think it's, I lied to that person. I, I, this person, theoretically, knows that they lied to that person. This person who's realizing their guilt is like, oh, yeah, I shouldn't have done that. If you realize that it, you shouldn't have done that, if you start to repent in your heart, then repenting in your actions involves giving it back. And you should give it back with interest. Not all sins involve restitution, but some do. If you've taken something from someone, you should give it back. If you've said something mean to your spouse, 
you should apologize. That might not be the same as restitution, but it kind of is. If you said something mean to your kids or your coworker, you should apologize. If you have any ability to make it right, you should try to make it right. That's part of taking responsibility for it. The third thing I would say about taking responsibility for your sins and failures is try to deal with it quickly. Because, well, any problem that exists tends to go better if it's dealt with sooner rather than later. Almost any problem that exists gets worse, even if you don't do anything about it as time goes by. If you have car problems and you don't address them, they're not, they typically don't just stay as bad as they are. They typically get worse. If you have health problems and you don't do anything about them, they typically don't just stay as bad as they are. They typically get worse. You know, if you have relationship problems and you don't do anything about them, they don't just stay where they are. They get worse. Most problems that go undealt with don't just stay where they are. They get worse. So in general, try to deal with it as quickly as possible. So those are five ways we should respond to our sins and failures. Before we get to our conclusion, I want to talk about how this applies if you're not a Christian. So I mentioned a few times how God forgives us when we sin. But all the things I said about God's forgiveness don't apply to you if you're not a Christian. But they could. God freely offers forgiveness to anyone and everyone. Let's look at Acts 10, verse 43. To Jesus, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. All you have to do to receive forgiveness is to trust in Christ Jesus that by dying for you on the cross, he paid the price for your sins. And to, you have to decide to submit your life to him and decide that he is Lord and trust him as Savior. And if you haven't done that before, forget these five things. This is the one thing. If you haven't done that before, this is the only way to deal with your sins and failures. Because if you haven't done this, you're unforgiven. So in conclusion, the way we should respond to our sins and failures is to learn to see them from the correct perspective, to not let them affect our identity, to learn to make the most of them, to forgive ourselves, and to take responsibility for them. That being said, let's get to our communion meditation. Today's communion meditation is called Christ, our merciful high priest. Let's look at Hebrews 2, verses 17 and 18. Therefore, Jesus had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make appropriation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So when we sin and fail, Christ has mercy for us. And not just mercy, but amazingly, Christ, who is God and who is holy, has sympathy for us when we sin. Jesus knows what it's like to go through temptation because he lived a human life. 
And when we are struggling with sin and temptation and it's difficult, Jesus sympathizes with that pain. Jesus doesn't condemn us for struggling with sin. He is empathetic towards us in our struggle of sin. And that's why we should confidently come to him in prayer, praying for wisdom and strength and confidence in our struggles against specific sins. So let's praise him as we come to the table.